How much noise? Have you guys ever heard a, a bear roar from Robert Redford that loud before? Oh god, that scene. Uh, <laughs> I just watched that um, last night, and uh, it's a very strange film to watch after watching our main film, which is Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Uh, it's a little bit uh, of a come down, right? Yeah, totally. it's a, it's a, it's called the Hot Rock, but it's definitely a cool off. <laughs> Hello, this is Film Trace. This is the podcast where we trace the life of a film from conception to production all the way to release and reception. We are doing, uh, is this what? I don't even know what number this is of our absurdist action cycle. Christian, off the top of your head? I don't know. Uh, it's the penultimate episode of this collection of episodes, and uh, we're talking about the 1970s today. Uh, so it's episode five, one more to go, which we look at, uh, the absurdist action, uh, style theme, subgenre, whatever you want to call it. Um, pre 1970, which is, I believe the first time we'll have done that on the show, two films from even before, uh, the golden age of this kind of cinema. But first we should make sure to let our guest introduce himself. We're very excited to have him, uh, Dan from the, you talking to me podcast dan thanks so much for coming on the show ah it's a pleasure absolute pleasure thanks for having me and if you want to just give a quick uh rundown so people know what is the you talking to me podcast all about i love the concept uh i want to make sure people uh get turned on to it especially uh other other dads that are movie geeks absolutely and that's how it started so um so the the setup is that um, James and I, my son James, who's a 15-year-old uh, um, film nerd, um, I pick a classic movie uh, that he's never seen and we watch it together. Uh, then we record the podcast and he sort of gives his view from a you know, 2022 uh, perspective. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's great because I get to watch I get to be there when he watches Silence of the Lambs for the first time or Psycho for the first time. And um, that's a, it's a great journey. You know, he's obviously loving it because he's getting to see all these, uh, all these films that he's, that he's never seen before, but he's heard so much about. So they're, they're, they're normally, we normally pick films that everybody knows, Casablanca, Some Like It Hot, those sorts of things. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's great. And it's great to share, share it with him. It's an experience. You know, we, we look at it as a, uh, a father and son uh, experience, something, something that we can experience together. That's amazing. Yeah. Do you, uh, I kind of want to know quickly the response to Chinatown. How did that one go? <laughs> Well, I mean, he, he, it, what was great about it is that he didn't really know Jack Nicholson. He'd never really seen Jack Nicholson in anything. Mm -hmm. um, knew of him, you know. He's 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 got enough knowledge to know who these people are, but he hasn't explored further back. So, watching Chinatown, which kind of blew him away, and actually, I hadn't I hadn't seen it for ages, and I just thought, wow, you know, just a masterpiece. Um, but he's now there's no. Um, it's not a surprise that the next film we did after Chinatown was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest because yeah. suddenly all he wanted to do was digest Jack. You know, he just wanted to that. just more and more Jack. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's it, those sorts of moments, you know, those sorts of uh, sharing that stuff with him. I mean, I've seen these films, obviously, but um, it's also new to him. And, yeah, he's he's absolutely loving it. We don't get to do as many as we'd like, but that's, you know, sure. that's a, you know, that's one of those things but uh yeah you know we're just enjoying the ride Very absolutely cool. i mean the 19 
Go ahead. I would say the 1970s is, uh, I mean, I think that's kind of the big conversation piece I want to, I want to make sure we dive into because, uh, that was kind of my revelation with both these movies, to be honest, especially our main film, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, uh, kind of a proto buddy, uh, caper crime movie, but also just like very much, uh, um, indicative, right. Of that kind of glow of seventies movies, oh. especially seventies <laughs> movies with antiheroes. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Should we dive in guys? What, what did, uh, wh- had anybody, this is my first watch and I think it's your first watch to co-host Dan, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, we, we did a Michael Cimino movie before. Didn't we? Yeah. A, a very bad one. Yes. And so um, I was, I, deer hunter is one of my favorite movies. Yes. And so, uh, I was excited to take a look at this just because, you know, what was his earlier work like as uh, his debut film. Um, and I was but I kind of a little bit nervous too. I was happy that I found it for this cycle. I was like, this kind of, this definitely fits in kind of what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. Um, but wow. Yeah. I didn't, I kind of expected it to be interesting. I didn't expect it to be, I think this good, at least in my opinion, I was like, oh, wow, this is something I'm going to have to rewatch. And I kind of want it in 4k. Like it's one of those movies like yes. right from the start. I'm like, oh, I got to go back to this. Um, I don't know about you, Dan. What did you think about yeah. it? Have you seen this before? Yeah. So um, I guess I'm a, I'm a, I think I'm a little older than you guys, but yeah. um, I think I saw this probably mid-teens. I was probably 16, 17, something like that when I first watched it, which was a which was a good age actually to yeah, yeah. To, to watch this. Considering I don't know. I, I mean it 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 I it was definitely. Um, something that certainly with the ending and and um you know that how how the film progresses it does stay with you and i know um that you what it would appear that your reaction uh, is as positive as as mine it was great re-watching it so sort of the first time i saw it you know you think it's you think it's this buddy heist movie this crime movie this this action adventure um and then I didn't know how it was going to end. I don't know. Did you guys know the ending before your first? No, no idea. Ah. So, you know, when I watched it uh, a couple of days ago, again, I sort of saw it differently because obviously I know what's going to happen. So it becomes more, I mean, it's very much about their relationship anyway, but it seems that it's just this film about the relationship of these guys that just happens to be uh, a, a sort of crime caper. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, one of my, one of the reasons, so I, I was both excited and nervous about it. Not only did the Michael Cimino factor, uh, because he had this kind of really almost tragic, uh, you know, rise and fall in Hollywood. Um, but also because like, I love Jeff Bridges, but I greatly usually dislike Clint Eastwood. Yep. And so I was like, you know, I just wondering how, like on the, on paper it should work, right? Like it's a classic combo of, you know, goofy free spirited guy and uh serious, uh, um, mysterious guy. Right. And I was just like blown away about how perfect Jeff Bridges was. Like I knew, like I hadn't seen a ton of his early work, um, other than like Tron. Um, but this is even way before that. And so like, I was kind of, it was just, it, it was a revelation, even though I've loved him in so many roles in, you know, the nineties onward. Uh, and that like, how do you, I don't know. Is, why is that performance like so under, 
like it's just not talked about the way a lot of 70s performances are but it's it sh- i feel like it should be iconic but i think that's there's something about this movie i don't know what it is and even doing sort of the research when we do a lot of these films especially from the 70s there's normally like a large amount of background material to go through like mm-hmm. books or articles or and all, and all the in between with this one for whatever reason um it just has not gotten the sort of reputation and sort of respect for whatever reason. I, I, and I do wonder why. And I think that's one of the reasons why Jeff Bridges, you know, he was nominated for an Oscar for this role, but it feels kind of forgotten. Yeah. I don't know, Dan, do you kind of agree yeah. with that? You probably have a different I, I, perspective than we well, do on it. No, not at all. I, I think it's, it definitely feels like that. And and one of the takeouts from the film after rewatching it was why isn't this a more regarded, yeah. well-regarded film? Why aren't people, you know, I obviously mentioned to people that we were, we were doing this and largely nobody had heard of the film. Um, you know, it's not re- re- uh, regarded as a classic. I mean, when you really look at it and, and looking at it again as a debut film and that, you know, again, it, you know, that's quite revelatory. You know, it's, 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 uh, it is something, I think something quite special, um, but um, yeah, I mean, you know, and, and that Oscar nomination as well. So it's yeah, I don't understand really why um, it's not it's not better respected. You know, I, I was well, say, I go ahead. <laughs> we're, like, we're like walking all over each other today. Yeah. Do we need to do uh, a synopsis here? If, if yeah. someone hasn't seen it, let's give them like the the basics. Do you want to do it? Right. Absolutely. Uh, if you, if you have not seen Thunderbolt and Lightfoot and you are for whatever reason listening right now, pause the cast and go and watch it. It is uh, streaming, I believe on HBO max. Is that where I watched it? Oh no. Showtime. Showtime. Showtime's on Showtime. Now. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. Uh, it is um, like we said before, uh, classic odd couple uh, action comedy um, before action comedy was really a thing. So Jeff Bridges plays Lightfoot, a uh, free spirited drifter, uh, Clint Eastwood plays Thunderbolt, legendary thief who is on the run. Um, I had to kind of do a double take. I almost considered rewinding it. They basically just wind up together because Clint Thunderbolt is literally running away from being shot by the film's antagonist. And (laughs) Jeff Bridges, Lightfoot, had just stolen a car and 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 just like magically, (laughs) it's like one of those like movie magic things, uh, script wise, uh, where he comes across him in the desert and lets him get in his car and then bam, they're, they're, uh, partners in crime. Um, there's double crossing, there's bank robbing, there's, um, uh, it's a road trip movie. Um, it's very much, uh, uh, a nature film as well. It's like out in the wide open. It's, it's just as like, uh, um, landscape heavy and uh american americana oriented as like easy rider or any of those films from the from the late 60s early 70s and yet it also is very much like setting the groundwork right for this um style of film where it is largely uh a you know character uh, drama, but with like heavy doses of comedy and, you know, maybe four or five action set pieces. Um, but that was definitely not heard of at the time that I know of. Was there anything else going on in the seventies that had this kind of vibe of mixing together comedy and action? I mean, there had to be something that we're missing, right? Um, 
I'm thinking that like, well, we're going to do the the hot rock later. Right. Which was a couple years prior to 1972. I think the thing that sticks out to me is like, yeah, it's like a weird and it kind of goes towards how this film was made because it's kind of bizarre, right? Like you have Clint Eastwood um, kind of takes Michael Cimino under his wing after uh, Cimino helps write Magnum Force in 73. And so I think you have this very standard, powerful guy in Hollywood who plays it pretty straight, right? Clint Eastwood is like, you know, the epitome of the tough guy, the stoic tough guy, uh, but also a very powerful man in Hollywood uh, now and back then. Taking this, I mean, he's a weirdo, right? I mean, Chimino is just kind of an odd duck. And having him, it's like, the entire film is this tension between Eastwood trying to play a tough guy and doing the whole stoic thing and Chimino letting Jeff Bridges kind of really improv and riff. And it is, it's such a bizarre concoction. Uh, And it, it works because of that constant, constant tension that is going on between this very loose seventies, um, new Hollywood vibe uh, mixed with this kind of old school post-World War II Americana star like Clint Eastwood. It, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think from, from my take there, like that's the thing that constantly created sparks on screen was that weird tension going on. Um, I don't know, Dan, what do you think, what makes this thing sort of sing to you, this movie? For me, you what you've got is this kind of like this unexpected film wedged into this, what is quite a conventional genre piece. And inside of that, there's all these layers and inside you've got this really interesting, you know, um, film about the relationship between sort of two guys really. Um, And that's the bit that's the the spark comes from, I think, but the way they play off each other and the chemistry between them, Um, everything else really is, well, it's quite interesting. And I I quite like the sort of freewheeling nature of it. And, um, you know, um, that for me was the, was the key is that, you know, it's not what you expect it. You, you, okay, we're going to go and watch this, you know, sort of comedy action caper film but actually what you're getting is something you know quite layered yeah i think the the layered aspect of it is something that is missing a lot like we um will we already talked about in the previous episode what happened in the 1980s right and eddie murphy and uh, uh you know shane black scripts you and you still have arguable arguably a layer to it but it's very much still like uh um kind of uh light in nature like you could very easily watch 48 hours of lethal weapon and not really come away with anything more than i was entertained whereas thunderbolt and lightfoot is that's part of that 70s kind of classic vibe right is that not only are you getting entertained from you know opening credits to closing you're also like really like living with these characters and so it never feels like shoehorned or forced when there is a like sentimental emotional moment between them. You know, even the, the slightest things you were talking about the tension and how that creates sparks. Like that's literally what chemistry is on screen. And you're seeing it from when Clint is calling Jeff Bridges kid um, in an endearing, but also kind of like what's wrong with you kind of way 
and also Jeff Bridges just being so open and uh, his infectious laugh that, uh, um, you know, he, he still does to this day on screen. And you have uh, that juxtaposition, um, but also like these moments. Um, I remember us talking about this when we were talking about 70s cinema um, for the last cycle, Dan, uh, existential thrillers, um, mm-hmm. William Friedkin's Sorcerer, which I've become obsessed with. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I, this movie makes me think of that a lot for some reason. Yeah. Like there's no, there's very little comedy in Sorcerer, but it, it very much like plays that genre piece straight that you were talking about other Dan, uh, where it's like you, you're very much expecting just like, you know, a, a good yarn, like a well-plotted, yeah. uh, um, like, yeah, yeah, action story. But you end up getting like these small moments that end up adding up to the point where you're like, oh, that really like made me think about friendship. Made me think about like what it means to to have accomplished something. Like that little speech that, you know, spoiler alert. If you haven't watched Thunderbolt, please do once again before you come listen to the rest of this. But as Jeff Bridges is, you know, coming to his final moments, uh, Lightfoot is very much um, kind of reconciling. The whole idea of being a criminal, of, uh, of making a lifelong friend, um, as he's on his deathbed in this car in the op- in big sky country, it's just like so. Like, it, 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 I don't know, put such an imprint on me. I'm just like, like I had thought for so long that this was just like a, you know, another long line of Clint Eastwood movies that might might have its moments, but wouldn't really like get in my feels. But I very much did. Did you, Dan? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is. This is awesome, uh, Chimino. I mean, yeah. it's like the you notice it even. I can't remember. It's right in the beginning. There's a very, very long take um, of them just driving a car next to like a pond or a lake, mm-hmm. and the way that he sets up the shot. And we all know he's a perfectionist. You know, Heaven's Gate obviously is his infamous film, and you know, failure at the time, but I think has been completely. Uh, revitalized as sort of his masterpiece. Um, he adds so much to this film. And it's funny hearing these sort of onset uh, conflicts that he had with Clint Eastwood because Clint Eastwood, and we can see this now as a director, even in the last decade, Clint Eastwood is workmanlike, mm-hmm. right? He gets in, he gets the job done. He obviously values art and acting and directing, but he views it as a job. And you can tell that in his style and his philosophy of filmmaking. And you could tell it back then in these onset reports where, you know, basically Clint Eastwood would be like, you got three takes, that's it, then I'm done. And he (laughs) would fight with Chimino about this and Chimino would want to do one more. And this is his first movie. And what's so fascinating about that part of it is even when Chimino is up against such a strong authoritative figure like Clint Eastwood, who not only is big back then, but got him his break to do this movie. He still gets out sort of the magic of his, mm-hmm. like, uh, like the magic of the first hour of Deer Hunter, which I could watch over and over again. Uh, it's just these beautiful, natural shots that ground the sort of the human drama in something much, much bigger. And so that's why, you know, when you talk about that final scene, where you know obviously it's 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 melodrama but it doesn't feel melodramatic no, no. It, it, for some reason it feels gritty uh and kind of 
it feels real in a way and authentic in a way that most movies can't achieve. Um, but it's just, you know, Ch- Chimino here is, is really finding his footing as I think, a you know, a great artist. Um, and then you'd say whatever you want. Like, it's funny when we watched desperate hours, what was that? Like season two of this podcast, like, like maybe yeah, a, year, a couple a years ago. ago, there were shots in that too. Oh yeah. There's just, still, Gorgeous and performances that he's able to get out of yeah. like really, you know, actors in their, <laughs> in their prime, but with like just a, yeah, dreadful script. <laughs> I mean, the one thing that I think Dan, you kind of hit on and I, I kind of want to explore a little bit more is like, how, <sighs> how do you balance a genre work? Like this could have been a, a very typical sort of heist and I think the hot rock would fall under fall underneath this. A genre work, it's just straightforward, hit point A, point B, point C throughout the plot. How do you think he was able to do that, be successful at that, but also get this sort of loose hangout vibe, almost meditation-like vibe to the movie? I mean, how do you think that he did that? I mean, from my perspective, it, it works best because it's a writer-director you know mm-hmm. i don't i don't think you get you know it's his material he's directing um you know it how else can you in somebody else's hands when it's not their own creation how do you balance those moments of tenderness with you know that action sequence and it it's it is a tightrope you know act you know it's it's that difficult to do and we know films i'm sure that have, that try and fail but the the fact that you've got you know quite moving parts and then a bit of slapstick or you know an action sequence to balance that i think you can only do that when it's when, when you're so um devoted to it because, because it's your own material yeah does this, does this film remind you guys of anything else does anything come to mind I mean, is this what often gets stated in kind of looking through the notes and stuff? Is that like, well, this movie got made because it was part of a road movie thing that was going on in the late 60s, early 70s. Easy Rider comes up multiple times. Does this feel indebted to Easy Rider in a lot of ways? Hmm. I mean, I think that's a fair question. I also feel like the reason that maybe uh chimino was able to ingratiate himself into hollywood so quickly and effortlessly was because he like you were kind of saying before he's he's kind of a uh a, a, a grab bag like he's not a guy that you can easily pin down your yeah. and you know I, I i wonder often if clint was like a different guy in the 70s um because you know he 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 still had a lot of the same characteristics that he has now. Like he was, he was still like working constantly, super prolific, both as an actor and becoming a director. And yet um, he had to kind of be, you know, he's younger and he uh, has like more, like this is the guy that ends up, you know, four years after this doing every which way, but loose and like thinks like doing a movie with a chimp is a, is a, is a good career move. Um, And so he's got a he he had to have some kind of spontaneity to him, or at least an appreciation for others that could be spontaneous, that could yeah. be kind of freewheeling is the word that uh, UK Dan uh, used earlier that I think is just so perfect for this. Um, I did want to say, make sure to take a ton, take a moment to mention how one of the reasons that I loved this movie so much is perhaps because it reminded me of my literal favorite movie. 
um, that didn't come out for 20 years later, uh, Bottle Rocket, Wes yep. Anderson's debut. Oh, yeah. And like that chemistry, that that uh, juxtaposition between Eastwood and Bridges, between specifically those two characters, not those two actors, but those two characters, in so many ways felt like the chemistry and juxtaposition between the Wilson brothers in uh, that movie. And it's also like about like, you know, small time criminals, just like, not just, you know, not really knowing what they're doing. And that kind of adds to the comedy of it all, but also just like them, like the character of Dignan, which I literally named my firstborn son after, uh, had that kind of feeling of like pulling off a heist is something to be accomplished. That's like part of a, part of a plan and part of like, how do I feel like I've done something with my life? And that's like what Lightfoot is to a T, right? Yeah. So I think that while maybe there's not a lot of, there's some indebtedness because Chimino is just like such a grab bag there. There's also so much uh, like so much threading from this movie through um, this kind of subgenre, this idea of like the action comedy of like criminals as goof as lovable goofballs kind of uh, storytelling that uh, is, was just so such a fun surprise for me. Um. What do we, is there anything, I was kind of following this as I went through it, thinking about those road movies and like the time period where it felt like most of the uh, auteurs and sort of artists who wanted to say something had something really political to say. Uh, Easy Rider being a perfect example of this. Mm -hmm. Um, An indie movie shot for next to nothing that, you know, basically was maybe you'd do it like a polemic on some level. Do we feel like there is an undercurrent of sort of political criticism in this film? I feel like it, it sort of at various points kind of peaks its have above, above water every once in a while. Did you guys feel that at all? Or is this more rooted in sort of the heist genre buddy film and sort of male friendship and, and companionship? Where, where do you sort of fall with the political aspect of this uh, UK Dan, why don't you why don't you take this one first? Because I've got to chew on that. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's it's a relationship film. You know, it's not a stereotypical story of of certainly uh, male friendship. So that's something that I think is um, is really is is kind of looked at quite openly in the, in the film, where perhaps that could have been completely ignored. Um, so yeah, I don't know necessarily politically, but you know, my, my take on this is, you know, here, here is somebody trying to do something different with kind of the man with, with, you know, seventies male, uh, seventies American male. Um, Mm -hmm. that to me is the, is, is what I took away from it. You know, there's, there's quite a lot to be said about, you know, the, the men in this film, um, the four sort of main, uh, guys, um, in terms of, you know, I don't know, from anything, you know, I don't want to get into it too much, but, you know, that how women are treated in this film, you know, that yeah. sort of thing. Um, so, you know, there's, I think that's quite overt. Um, and, you know, and it's quite an interesting way uh, to, to look at it at a time, you know, it's sort of mid-70s when there's lots of films being made where, you know, sort of action movies where it's just, you know, it's not being, it's not being considered, if you see what I mean. Yeah. No, yeah. 100%. Chris, what do you think? Well, the, the probably most interesting like autobiographical element of this, which 
ends up being political was, you know, Chimino uh, had this kind of really nasty rumor as his career was unwinding. um, And even through to like his last decade um, before he died in 2018, 2017 um, of whether or not he was uh, transitioning um, from male to female. And uh, I mean, you literally like this is his debut film, and yes, you've got like all the questionable misogynistic stuff, which is very much of its time. Um, and then the end of the movie, like the last, uh, or not the last, but like a good thirty-minute portion, Jeff Bridges is in drag, yeah. and he uh, not only, it, it, but it's like not played for laughs the way no, that like not at all, like uh, you know the early SNL or anything like that. Um, it's very much like he straight up like looks up in the mirror and says like, wow, I'm like, I look good. Like, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and that was also kind of refreshing, especially because the beginning of the film is so like macho and, um, but even like those moments where like they, they bring the girls back to the hotel room and, but then like the, like I, I was not expecting a 1974 film to have like a, a, a very minor, very kind of disempowered uh, female character be like, um, drive me home or I'm going to go out and yell rape. And then she actually does it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So it, it's just, it's, it, it shows that like, while maybe he wasn't as uh, overt about it in interviews, he was also kind of very much seen as a, as a guy that, um, Chimino was uh, uh, wanted to let his films speak for themselves. Yes, yeah. And and yet, the, like it's just it's so chock full of that uh, kind of identity politics that you you can't help but just like uh, see see that happening over the course of his career. I also wanted to quick mention that the one of the few things that he did say or that a lot of people um, kind of took from the few interviews he did um, during the seventies was that he saw. Um, his first three films as a sort of spiritual trilogy, which um, say what you will about like, you know, calling three random films in somebody's uh, <laughs> filmography. But it, I, I, I actually want to think about that now. I want to rewatch Heaven's Gate um, and maybe rewatch Deer Hunter, even though I've seen it a bunch where it's like, it, it's a really interesting kind of thought experiment about uh, what kind of, we use the word Americana a couple of times. Like yeah, you yeah. do have three very different views on essentially. Yeah. Something very similar, which is like the idea of what it means to be an American man. Um, the small time criminal, the big time veteran and yeah. the like westward um, empire kind of, kind of profile. And yeah. I, I think, I, I think it could work. I'd have to do, rewatch all three, but yeah, <laughs> that's a lot of work. That's what I have to say. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, there's something, something that struck me while watching this and, and this is not just about this film necessarily, but just sort of these road films and, and buddy films of, of the seventies where there's just this inherent rootlessness about these characters. Uh, that is so feels so distinctly American. Um, the fact that they're constantly sort of changing their identities. Um, what there's some line, uh, or Clint Eastwood is basically, if you don't know what to do, just keep moving forward. Just keep moving. Um, mm. there's something just, uh, the fact that you can go from town to town to town back then before the internet, before even cable TV and no one have any idea who you are. There's just something about that where um, 
that's all gone now essentially you could never do anything anything that they're doing in this movie into the same effect you can't just get in a car go to the, like an hour away and, and no one's going to know you can't find out about you right which is sort of a very fascinating world that is you know for the most part was a kind of just a moment in time but i think that this film really captures that that openness of the american west which um you know, is has has faded dramatically, uh, which also kind of makes the film special because it feels maybe like a like a time capsule to that that one moment in you know America's history where things were really open and there was an ability. You know, it's kind of the American dream to kind of be whoever you want to be, uh, and you're always thinking about the future and the past never existed, right? And that's kind of how these characters are, are acting. And it's always about the next big score. Oh, if I just have money then, right? All these sort of, you know, hyper-capitalistic, and they're all committing crimes constantly. Like, it's not even a thought about committing a crime that it's wrong. Never does that once come up, right? And that's also a very American sort of concept of just being like, well, the money's out there. I need to go get it, you know? Um, I don't know. I just, I love that aspect of this film. And it, it really struck to me a very specific... Uh, kind of American Americana tone, especially from the 1970s. Uh, what's interesting too about this movie, and I wanted to bring up, is that it did perform actually well. So we kind of talk about it as like maybe it's a little bit lost. Uh, it's kind of forgotten. Um, you know, it was only filmed for you know what was it uh, four million dollars back then, and it did eventually did 25 million total, which would equate to nowadays 150 million dollars at the box office. Hmm. That's a lot. Like, that is a lot of money. And it was a top 20 movie of 1974. Um, But the bigger question is, kind of going back to where we started, why, because of its financial performance, it did pretty well. Clint Eastwood was not happy for a couple reasons. One, Jeff Bridges outacted him and got nominated. (laughs) uh, So he was pissed about that. And two, the initial box office run was okay. Uh, and ended up doing back then it was roadshow type stuff. So they would open it up city, city, city. So it eventually did very well, but he was not happy with the initial box office run. Uh, so it's successful, I think, critically. And I think from a commercial perspective, very successful. You know, what, what has happened over the last 50 years that has caused this movie to be kind of forgotten? Is it Chimino's sort of crashing career after Heaven's Gate? Um, is it a little too strange for most people? I mean, what, why do we think it is sort of just dissipated? And Dan, what do you think? I think some of it is the, is the Chimino, uh, element. Um, sure. and obviously none, none of which is his fault really. Um, so I think that, you know, if we, if we were sitting here and it was a Scorsese film, obviously, you know, mm-hmm. there's the, a rich back catalog that everybody knows every single film, you know, mm-hmm. um, I think that um, it's not even necessarily um, those people that are, you know, sort of fans of this film. It's not necessarily viewed as a Michael Cimino film. It's a Clint Eastwood film, isn't it? It's a Jeff Bridges film. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I, I do think that um, its uniqueness is is probably another reason why um, it gets sort of put aside um do people want to talk about it do people want to deal with it there's you know there's some things going on in this film which which are unique to the genre um certainly that in that period um so yeah i mean it's really interesting and and it and 
and watching it again and, and you as you've said already Dan watching it, it, it that is the thing that you start thinking about relatively early on because if you're along for the ride and you do you, you can't help but really like these characters especially obviously the Jeff Bridges character and his performance is you know you can't take your eyes off him um but you know all of that together you there's a question mark isn't it why why don't we talk about this film more um there are and there are some shots in this film which are you know i mean it's beautiful some of it's amazing um yeah and the performances you know i mean we, we if you were talking about jeff bridges would you talk about his oscar nomination for thunderbolt and lightfoot probably not no yeah you wouldn't it doesn't come up right even though like when he does a big performance and even a mediocre movie like crazy heart, you have people like talking about like how he, he, he deserves, like he, he just commands the screen even when the script is lacking. And I mean, I, I, I think I would, um, just to, uh, be a little more objective. I, I, you know, I was very much smitten with this movie, but I did get kind of a little annoyed with uh, some of the plotting. And I think that's, part of the critical um, response to the film back then. Uh, also like just to go back to the commercial piece real quick. Yes, it, it was top 20 film, but like it was a Clint Eastwood movie. And so people expected it to be like top five, sure, top yeah. 10 of the, of the year. And I think there was also that friction, like Clint also had friction, not only with Chimino, but also with United artists. Yeah. Um, uh, because uh, uh, he, you know, he gambled big on getting this guy, um, in the director's chair and United artists didn't really want to put a lot of promotion into it. Uh, and so I think there's, there's something about it where it's like, you know, wh whose movie is in it? It's like, you've got not only two of the hugest, um, actors, you've also got this really brash, um, debut guy. Like that makes for a perfect, like film geek movie, yeah. Yeah. but populist. I, I, not quite. And also, so go, and then not to, sorry, going, going back and forth, but the plotting, the, uh, it, it shouldn't matter because it's such a, you know, character relationship movie, but it it is like, I just, I really got stuck in that third act where it's just like, okay, you, you did the score. Why aren't, why are you going to the drive-in? Why aren't you just like skipping yeah. town? That's like <laughs> that, that Part just, plan, Chris. <laughs> um, no, I, I totally get that. Yeah. It's, there's something. I, I think at the end of the day, it, to me, it's like that it was that conflict between Chimino and Eastwood and Brid whose movie is this? Yeah. You know, that's really what I think it, because uh, Dan, to your point, I think it got, you know, this is kind of labeled, I guess it's an East, you know, Eastwood movie. Right. But it's not, it's no. absolutely not at all. Uh, it's a Chimino movie through and through. Like this is definitely his baby and his work as the writer director and Jeff Bridges showed up and put on an amazing performance and Eastwood I think does okay. Uh, I don't I think he gets lost a little bit because he doesn't really know the vibe and how to play it, but he he doesn't have to. He just plays the the stoic dude and he's fine with that. How do we then compare this to our Chaser film, The Hot Rock? Mm. Which I think I picked this, didn't I? We both picked it. I we think both, we, I I was all about this one, yeah. but. I mean, you went you went along with me, uh, and just just like full disclosure, like I I have an affinity for this movie, but mo mostly just because I sought it out at my local library when I was a teenager and got really into Slater Kinney, uh, <laughs> Seattle band that named one of their albums the Hot Rock, and they 
they've uh they did a take on the poster for their album cover there so such just, a music nerd yeah so, yeah yeah <laughs> so that I, that's that's my baggage but um had either of you guys seen this one dan go ahead have you seen this uh no no i hadn't i heard of it and uh knew knew the book but you know again you know hadn't hadn't read the book or uh, certainly seen the film in fact i didn't even know it was um i didn't even realize it was a william goldman script until, like, yeah. until it came up on the screen yeah uh, I had, yeah, I had never seen this before. I'd never heard of it. Just doing research for, you know, action comedies and going back, trying to find stuff in the seventies and this thing popped up and I'm thinking, you know, um, Robert Redford, uh, George Siegel, um, Peter Yates. I was not super familiar with, uh, what do you do? Bullets? I think. Yeah. Yeah. Before yeah. this, uh, which I've actually never seen. Oh, um, that's a good one. So I don't know how to compare it to that, but walking, watching this almost right after I watched Thunderbolt and Lightning <laughs> was really tough just because I think, you know, this definitely works within the absurdist action cycle that we're doing. It's a kind of Ocean's Eleven-esque uh, heist film about a diamond they have to get, blah, blah, it doesn't really matter. It's about the height, you know, it's about pulling off the heist. And in this one, there's many different heists. Yeah. Right. There's like four or five at yeah. least. Um, the thing that blew me away about this was, and this is my opinion, my viewpoint, uh, I don't expect, I don't expect anybody to share this, uh, how little the comedy works. What? <laughs> I mean, it just, there's so many moments, and I, I couldn't stop thinking about this because I watched it last night and I woke up thinking about this. I, like, why is it, for me personally, the moments that should be absolutely hilarious just falls so flat to me. The moment uh, Seal gets stuck inside the, the diamond case. Yes. It's like that should make me laugh and make me feel like, oh, that's funny. But I just come, I couldn't get over how flat it felt. And then um, the landing on the wrong roof for <laughs> so the helicopter police thing heist. Uh, again, I, I, Chris, you got to fill me in, buddy. Like, what? What am I missing here? Do I have I no mean, sense of humor? Is that what you're trying to tell me? <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, I don't know. You were laughing a lot when we watched Day Shift last weekend. Uh, uh, <laughs> a great movie, Netflix <laughs> original. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I we talked. We started off the show talking about like, yeah, I would agree with you. It's a definitely cool down. Um, but I mean, I think that's part of the appeal, right? Like even down to like the promotion for this movie, even though it did fall flat, it was a a flop. Um, Huge flop. Like, by the way. Huge yeah, flop. but like that that kind of chilly uh, machismo of these characters uh juxta which once again juxtaposition not necessarily with each other because they're all kind of like losers um but that juxtaposition of them like just especially redford like he's just like oozes cool and yet he gets like in this absurd cyclical like making mistakes crew like i think that's part of the charm of it it's not necessarily like a laugh out loud like it's very different from the kind of uh comedy you'd um end up getting in oceans 11 uh or any of those types of later films because it's like this almost uh it's absurdist ultimately right like that they and you're supposed to like think that they they aren't really thinking things through and yet like they're most concerned with 
you know, how they look doing it and whether or not like you're going to do a favor for your brother-in-law. And I think that that's, I don't know, it works for me because it's an ensemble piece and you are, I treated it much more as a comedy than as a heist movie. Like this, like Soderbergh tried to kind of invert that, right? Like make it ultimately a heist movie, but with like some cool comedy on top of it. This is ultimately a farce at its core, I think. And I think, I mean, you wouldn't have George Siegel or the, the, the guy who plays the, the bomb maker. Um, he, I think he's great. He, he, he plays that kind of, um, role where it's just like, uh, kind of, I guess that's the link to Thunderbolt and Life. It's like, they're just, they're goofballs. They don't know what they're doing, but you can't help, but, you know, like them and wish that they somehow pull it off. What do you, yeah, yeah what do you think? You gotta, you gotta settle this for us. <laughs> yeah. I have to put you in the yeah. middle, but I just put you in the middle. I say, I mean, to me, I, I think farce is a good way of, of describing it. I sort of came at it, I was thinking it was a more of a light-hearted, I didn't think it was going for out-and-out comedy. I don't think they were trying for out-and-out comedy. Hmm. Um, more of a, you know, they're just, they're just sort of crazy guys, you know, um, get the crew together and everyone's a little bit wacky in their own way and, and all those sorts of things. So, I mean, I did enjoy it. I, I was... Um, I didn't know much about the plot, so the fact that I was we were watching a heist movie and the main heist was kind of 25 minutes in, I was like, excellent, this is all going to go horribly wrong. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, so I really enjoyed the the trip, you know. And, uh, um, but yeah, and they, and they, were, they were all fine in it. But, yeah, I, di- I didn't – I wasn't disappointed because I was expecting it to be funnier, if that's if that's what we're saying. Hmm. Well, so what it, when you say fall flat – uh, Dan, do you think that um, they? Do you think that there was like potential here that was squandered, or like I'm just wondering? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Oh, I think there's tons of potential, and that's the thing that I kept racking my brain around. It's like, why doesn't this work? Why doesn't this spark to me? Because you have Robert Redford, and you have George Segal, which are two perfect leads to play off of each other. But it just doesn't. Even from the opening scene where he's walking out of the prison and Segal's in the car. And he apparently doesn't want to drive. Because he's still the car, <laughs> okay, yeah, I'll, I'll agree with you on that one. It's that just sort of like, great. it's like it, it, the tone. And I think the tone's all over the place. And I think that's the thing. If it meant to be a comedy, it needed to turn up the laughs just hmm. a, like a little bit more, make it more jovial. But it had that weird sort of naturalistic seventies crime film thing going on where it's trying to be sort of gritty um i don't know it just it felt like it was a no man's land between like a heist movie and action film and a thriller and kind of you know just a fun romp um mm-hmm. because i like those scenes where uh it should be hilarious for whatever reason just seems like oh and then he got trapped under the case and they start running around from the police it should be hilarious like the way they're running around from the the museum guards and stuff like that it should be funny, but for some reason to me, um, I don't know why that is. Maybe it's the, the characters. I mean, one of the things, too, is like, that stood out to me is, um, and this is going to sound probably dumb, but I'm going to say it anyways because I, I don't care. Um, what's the motivation of any of these characters? <laughs> I always say this, and I'm like, I always yeah. go back to screenwriting basics. But it's like Robert Redford. Like, even in, like, an Oceans movie or a comedy like that, it's very clear why they want to do what they want to do. 
And it's a Robert Redford. What is his motivation? Oh, I, my heart's not in being a straight dude, you know, playing it straight, playing it. That's what he says in the opening, right? Right. Is that it? Yeah. I mean, I think there's, I get that kind of take on it because if you're going to be a comedy, like those signposts should be more obvious, but because it's got that kind of like, yeah, like you said, that cool naturalist naturalistic vibe. Um, I mean, it's, it's Yates. That's why some people don't can't get into like bullet um, because he is known for being a spare kind of director, especially like within the bombast of typically the genre. And I saw that you put that in your notes, right? Is that like he, he was kind of over, um, you know, this early seventies explosion of drugs and violence and sex in cinema and so he kind of pulls that back and still but still manages to make a movie about criminals and i think that there's moments that just work for me really well because um because of the actors involved uh i think redford really does sell this kind of like he is out uh of jail for like you know the uh, one of the multiple times he's been put in jail and that's like that running joke right is that he's yeah. just destined to repeat that process and so it's got this kind of like existential uh element to it and he does have this moment where he kind of just like rolls his eyes and he's like yeah this is what i do and it's like the sisyphean um absurdism that <laughs> maybe it just speaks to me and because i've got my own issues but <laughs> but he really feels like perfectly suited to go along with this ride. Whereas like the other guys are a little less, um, a little more blind to like the, the inevitable, um, getting caught and, uh, things going wrong. And so that juxtaposition works for me too. I do think that, uh, um, uh, there's probably something going on here with like the translation from novel to script yeah that that is lacking uh, apparently this is a huge character and big crime writer donald westlake and the character of uh dortmunder that redford plays um that uh i don't know i i, I w- you you had mentioned uh the the novel to um uk dan but did you feel like there was something going on here that unlike a lot of these original scripts like Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, and then even going into the eighties with this kind of genre, uh, 48 hours and lethal weapon. Um, it's kind of like that. Is there like a strange no man's land? Like Dan's talking about. I think, I think with this one, it, you, you know, there's, there's no, there's no character development going on. Is there? I mean, it's, it's, uh, I think, I don't know what the book's like. I think that, you know, Robert Redford sort of just, playing robert redford there's mm-hmm. there's no you know Looking it's not great. it's not very deep you know but i think it's successful as a caper movie i think it yeah. works for you know it's designed as this machine it's a it's a caper film go and watch it you'll be entertained um people's motivation sort of overlooked isn't it um yeah. but uh, yeah it, yeah not 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 hugely deep but entertaining nonetheless i mean i did enjoy i did come away from it you know i thought it was really good but you know whether you get i don't know i i I was what i was interested in i might try and sort of look into this a bit more but i was interested in um the difference between the novel and the and uh, and the script essentially because i felt like it was a very very much uh sounded very much like a william goldman script um there were aspects to it there were absurdist aspects to it and i wondered if they were in the book um and there's some neat ideas you know there's a there's a lot of good there's some funny ideas that perhaps like you say dan are not are not entirely explored uh to the to the you know, to the fore 
But um, I think for what it's trying to do, be a piece of entertainment, it works. And I don't, I don't think it's necessarily supposed to be that deep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's very fair. And I think the the thing that um, the thing that does work for me is just this um, the inability to get this diamond and like the escapades that happen. There's something about it here where in another film it would feel more slight, but here it does kind of reach a sort of existential level of like, how are they ever going to get this? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's this, the, um, you know, it's the thing always. And I think, uh, Clint Eastwood says this in, um, at the end of Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, let's see what's over the next mountain. You know, mm-hmm. it's like what's over that. It's always going towards this thing, this um, uh, this idea, this concept, this dream that you can't ever quite catch. And obviously, that's the diamond here, right? Um, but yeah, that does work because it, the amount of times that they have to set up a heist, figure it out, go through the gauntlet each time of doing this, it does end up having this effect where the comedy is more it's at a higher level than just hijinks there's almost like a, a sort of tragic comic comedy to it like that the, they're never going to get this and no one's ever going to get what that thing is uh, and that's kind of okay right there's sort of this realization that um you know the dreams that you have the things that you want uh are just kind of unattainable but you're gonna you're gonna keep trying even to get them even though you know that it's kind of untainable uh, and I think that's probably a little bit of Robert Redford's character here, but he gets it in the end. That's why it's a comedy, right? It ends in a yeah. marriage, so to speak. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think I think for me, it's just sort of like that. All that stuff works on a high level. It doesn't work within the scenes itself, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That's fair. I think I do. Uh, I did want to make sure to note that. Um, one of the things that works most for me in the film is actually not one of the main four guys, but Moses Gunn as the uh, um, guy from the Af- the fictional African country that hires them. Yeah, Every yeah. scene where they come back to him and he just gives them this like death stare of like, how did you guys screw this up again? I mean, it's such, it's such, it's that part is broad. And I think, I mean, the guy's great. He's known for the shaft movies and uh, I'll always remember him from my childhood because he was a never ending story. Yeah. Um, uh, that is just like uh, that. That is what I think has made has made this movie stuck with me the most over the years. But I think it, all this uh, you know analysis is is fair game, and yet still, like uh, um, Dan from you talking to me um, points out, is so much of this genre unlike the existential thriller and arguably also unlike the self aware horror stuff that we were talking about when we revamped the show, like. it's ultimately entertainment and it's supposed to be kind of just breezy. And like the, this is kind of the beginning of that, I think. And I think that uh, there wasn't, there weren't a lot of filmmakers trying to um, kind of have that balance, especially in the early mid seventies. And uh, so I think that if we're talking about like Thunderbolt and Lightfoot being underrated in terms of its legacy, I think Peter Yates is too. And I think that, uh, um, uh, that it definitely deserves some um, some reconsideration, even if it doesn't wholly work. Um, 
Okay, yeah, I'll I'll allow that. That's that seems, that seems okay. Compromise, okay. Compr- we'll compromise of it. If like Thunderbolt and and Lightfoot needs like what does it need? Criterion edition? It does. Mm-hmm. It absolutely <laughs> needs a Criterion. I need to see that Criterion spine on that on this movie. In uh, the fact that it doesn't is just mind blowing to me. Uh, Hot Rock, you know, I don't know. It, to me, I obviously have a very different opinion of the film than you do, Chris. Um, there's definitely stuff to. Uh, value and cherish in it uh, but i think to me it's just ugh, it just feels kind of it feels slight mm-hmm. uh uh to me it feels like a little bit of a relic and it feels very dated in a lot of ways um but that's just my take on it uh dan what, what's your final thoughts on sort of thunder thunderbolt and lightfoot and, and the hot rock what do you think um absolutely thunderbolt and lightfoot was it was a was just a dream to watch again. I really, really liked it. In fact, uh, it's uh, it's one of those. I mean, I think to be honest, I think I'd even forgotten it. Really, you know, I hadn't I hadn't considered it for a long time. Even though you know, back then when I first watched it, I would say it did have an effect. It, it was an effect. You know, it was an effective film. I did I did take stuff away from it. Um, but obviously, the end I'm talking about. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I won't think about the Hot Rock tomorrow, but I will think about Thunderbolt and Lightfoot tomorrow. <laughs> That's great. I love that. Uh, that's yeah, a good, a good uh, summary of the situation. Yep. Um, what do you? Uh, what's coming up on on the podcast? Any, any new episodes coming up soon? Uh, yeah, we're uh, due to record. We're doing Badlands next. Oh yes. No way. Um, so wow, another film awesome. that James is James is very aware of, you know, and but has never never seen. And, and uh, so yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing that one. That's awesome. Uh, well, we really appreciate you being on the show. Um, And this has been Film Trace.